Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, July 25th, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. What would you say if I told you that New York City has enough space to grow all of the vegetables that we currently consume? You'd probably call me crazy, but I want you to look up, way up. New York City has more than 5,000 hectares of full sun roof, and to New York Sunworks, a nonprofit organization looking at sustainable engineering, that translates into a lot of garden growing space. Before moving to rooftops everywhere, New York Sunworks is testing their sustainable growing systems on a barge. That's right, a boat. The Science Barge is in its second year running, and I stopped by West 70th Street to check out how they're doing. This week, tag along for a tour and hear about real-life possibilities of sustainable gardens in the Big Apple, and see what the Science Barge looks like in our multimedia slideshow. Go online to scienceandthecity.org podcast. Support Science in the City podcast by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org. Yeah, go ahead and let people on board. We are sitting in the middle of Science Barge currently, and I think the best phrase that we've come up with to describe it is a platform for sustainability. We literally are a floating box with a bunch of different technical systems on board that display some unique aspect of sustainability. So there's renewable energy systems, green building materials, a greenhouse with hydroponic growing systems, a constructed wetlands. All this stuff is kind of positioned around us right now. My name is Zach Adams. I'm the Ecological Systems Director for New York Sunworks. I basically do a lot of the technical construction that is needed on the science barge and some design work as well for future systems. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the science barge. Thanks for coming aboard. Well, I was hired in June of 2006, and we started some design work, some conceptual design work had already been done, but the real hard design and construction began the summer of 2006. We actually literally started building in late August of 2006, and we were finished roughly May 1st, 2007. And we're building all the time, so it's really hard to say that we're finished building. I am Jen Nelkin, and I'm the greenhouse director here for New York Sunworks, working on the systems on the Science Barge and for other greenhouses that we're currently designing. The Science Barge was started, the idea, the brainstorm was really of our executive director, Ted Kaplow, and he wanted to build a facility for the city where we could do education research and demonstration projects so people could really get hands-on with the things that you're hearing. All the green technologies you hear so much about sustainability is such a buzzword right now. And New York City wants to be such a green city, but there's not that many places you can go and touch and see all these different kind of technologies. So we wanted to build this as a resource for the city. This is the first project we've built, and this is our second year operating it now, and it's been very successful, so successful that now we're looking at building a lot more of these, but not on barges anymore, and really moving these systems into the built environment and onto rooftops. The barge uses about 25 kilowatt hours a day of power on average, and that's about as much as a medium-sized apartment in Manhattan uses if they don't run the air conditioning too much. On a good day in July, our solar panels will meet three-quarters to maybe 90% of that load. So our solar panels can produce about 20 kilowatt hours of energy on a really sunny day in the summer. When you come to 
any building project in which you're going to be using renewable energy, you really have to understand the resources around you that are available. And in New York City, even though we are on the waterfront and we're pretty low, and we wanted our windmills to be low enough for people to be able to see them. And so the wind resource here was not very significant. So our wind generators are mostly for demonstration purposes. And so when you phase that out, you're basically left with two things in terms of renewable energy, biofuels and solar. And so we wanted to demonstrate as many technologies as possible and affordable. So really, as soon as we were able to ascertain how much energy we would be using with the office and with the greenhouse, we came up with a number, and then we had to match that number with renewable energy. And it was feasible and affordable to match it with solar. And so we built our 2.5 kilowatt solar array. It provides the majority of our power, probably about 60% of the annual average power that we use here on the barge. So as we walk over, take note of the deck that you guys are walking on. It might look like wood, but it's actually 100% recycled plastic lumber. And it's actually 80% post-consumer. So this deck is literally made out of soda bottles and milk jugs that you throw in your recycling bins. Picnic tables are made out of it too, and if you look at the profile view of the picnic tables, you see how it's melted down and literally extruded into these shapes, made into lumber. It's three times the cost of regular decking, but it'll last forever, essentially. And when you're done with it, you can actually throw it in the recycling bin. So we try to use the most affordable, sustainable materials here, or green materials on the barge, as we possibly could. And this recycled plastic is just one example. All right, water and food. Let's go in the greenhouse. For our water systems, we have two reasons that we need water on the barge and two ways we get water. So we need water for our irrigation systems for the plants, and we need water for our evaporative cooling system. The way we get our water is one, from rainwater collection off the greenhouse roof, and secondly, from reverse osmosis, purifying the river water. We have a reverse osmosis system on board, and as scary as it sounds, we take Hudson River water and purify it to better than drinking water quality standards, essentially. And we do that using reverse osmosis, which is really just a fancy term for a system of pumps and filters. So we have pumps that will move the water up from the river onto the barge, and we have, that's a boost pump, and we have another pump that pushes water through pre-filters, and then the ultimate filter is a reverse osmosis filter. It takes very high pressure to force water through a membrane that has microscopic pores in it. The holes in the membrane are so small that it, the, the smallest living organism is about 0.03 microns as a virus. The holes in this reverse osmosis filter are 0.003 or something to that effect. So they're a magnitude of degree smaller than the smallest living organism. So no bacteria, no viruses, not even large molecules like salt can pass through this membrane. So what we start with is Hudson River water, which has a large amount of pollutants in it. And depending on the day, it could be even raw sewage if there's a combined sewage outfall event. And what you're getting in the end is purified water that you can actually drink. And so I, I, I think that it's a great system and it has a lot of implications for the developing world where there is a, a technical skill set, but there may not be good water for people to drink. It's an expensive system, but by the end of its useful lifetime, it will have produced gallons of pure water at a fraction of a penny. So a lot cheaper than the bottled water that you buy at the store. So these tanks next to us here, we have a 1,200-gallon storage capacity for rainwater. The greenhouse is 1,300 square feet, and as Zach showed with this black pipe on the outside of the greenhouse, we have three gutters at the two ends in the middle of the greenhouse, and we collect the water. It is collected first to a tank outside called a first flush device. 
and that will flush the first 20 gallons of water that falls on the roof. In between rain events, dust and debris collect on the roof and we don't want to divert that into our tank. So we fill up this tank outside first and once we've filled 20 gallons, it closes a float valve that diverts the rest into our system. And that's all the treatment that the water gets. We are very water efficient here in our method of food production with the recirculating hydroponics. So really with New York City's climate and the amount of rainfall that we get here, with enough storage capacity, there's enough rainwater here to meet all of our irrigation demands. People ask us a lot, is this financially viable in the city? And there's a lot of factors in that. But one really important factor is that we currently as a society do not valuate a lot of negative externalities that come from processes. So when a farm uses 10 times more water, but they don't pay for it, but the aquifer does pay for it, and eventually in the future the aquifer runs out of water, and then what do people pay for water then? So that negative effect, or runoff, no one pays, no one gets fined for runoff, not necessarily, some companies may, but not really farmers. And so non-point source pollution, no one really pays for that. All these negative externalities that do have a cost, they do have an impact on society, but we currently have no method to evaluate them. Maybe in the future they will, and you're seeing carbon taxes and a few other things like that. What will conventional processes cost in the future versus what we're doing now? And how do we make sense of that in a financial way? And then how do we communicate that to people and especially investors to make what we're doing make financial sense? So you can see we have these, or we just got planted last week. We have cucumbers, tomatoes, bell peppers, hot peppers, and melons right now. The crops in here change all the time. These cucumbers are really young already. These plants will grow, the plant itself, not the fruits, will grow about six inches a day. You can just see how much surface area there is from these leaves. So they're, just, they're really intercepting so much sunlight that they grow really fast. The cucumbers get replaced fairly quickly, just about every month, a little over a month. They'll grow all the way up to the wire, come over the wire, grow all the way back down, and then get replaced. We have the tomatoes, which are a really important crop in here. The tomatoes will keep all season, so a tomato plant will grow 10 months. We grow them 8 months with our season here. You see these blocks that they're planted in. Tomatoes will first, just like the cucumbers, grow straight up to the wire. As they hit the wire, they're clipped up, and then some of that string is unraveled, and so the plants are lowered and then shifted over one space. It's called leaning and lowering, and then they hit the wire again. You lower them and lean them. And so you can see, you know, these plants are already, their roots are there, so we'll just keep wrapping them around this whole system. These plants will be about 30 feet long. We prune off the lower leaves. The tomatoes only need about 11 to 15 leaves for photosynthesis and then we prune off the rest of the vegetation so that we don't have too much humidity build up at the base of the plants where we might get any sort of fungal problems. We do get bugs. The, the bugs will find the food. We do not use pesticides. So you'll see these sticky cards all over the place. These are for monitoring, not for control. So these sticky cards are the same color as flowers. Bugs will be attracted to these. And by this, every week, we go and monitor and see what insects are on the cards. And then based on what we find, we release beneficial insects in here. So the bugs that we don't want eat our plants. We want carnivores and not vegetarian bugs in here. Whatever we find, let's say we find aphids in here. We, re we did find aphids on the peppers recently, and so we released ladybugs that come in and eat all the aphids and then... If there's no food left, they'll just fly away. If there is food left, they'll stay. We regularly release a lot of preventative, beneficial insects just for things that we anticipate seeing throughout the season. We've released insects already to prevent white flies, thrips. 
Most commercial greenhouses, if they're growing tomatoes, they'll put bee boxes in there to do all their pollinating for them. We've been lucky and that actually the rocking of the barge has done almost all of it for us. We um, didn't want to put bees in here. We have student groups that come in every morning and to worry about someone being allergic to bees is just too scary. So no bees in our greenhouse. And so we were lucky to have the rocking of the barge do most of that for us. Four flowers that are complete flowers. So when you have the male and female parts within a single flower, the rocking will do it for you. We don't need pollination for the greens. We don't need pollination for the cucumbers. They're seedless variety. For the tomatoes, we need it. And for the peppers, we need it. And for the strawberries. In all those cases, the male and female parts are in the same flower, so the rocking's enough. For the melons, and when we uh, do squash in here and some other crops, the male and female parts are on the same plant but in different flowers. And in that case, we actually have to transfer the pollen with a paintbrush, and we'll do that manually. There's about 5,000 hectares of unshaded rooftop space in New York City. With these kind of growing systems that we have using greenhouse where you get year-round production, very high yields from being year-round producing and optimizing the environment for plant growth, you can produce so much more per square foot also. So on that 5,000 hectares, we could grow enough fresh fruits and vegetables to meet the whole demand for New York City for these crops. In that regard, it's very applicable, and why not grow the food where people eat it the average food item is traveling about 1,500 miles to get here. And so growing food where people live makes a lot of sense. We're looking at developing a commercial system right now in New York City on a rooftop, which then has a lot of other advantages in addition to what we have on the barge here. So you can tie into the building. You can use waste heat from the building when you need heat in the winter for the greenhouse. And so that can be another way. And also this any heat or cool air that you're venting from the building into the greenhouse, you can capture CO2. So there's all these synergies. You're also insulating the roof. We do rainwater capture off our greenhouse roof, so by collecting it, we're still doing some of the stormwater management that green roofs benefit and why that's become so popular in New York City because of our combined sewers. What we're looking to do with this is two things right now is one, look at the commercial viability for people to really start urban farms using these technologies. And then the other one is educational greenhouses where a school can use these kind of systems to teach all their uh, core science classes and then use all the produce in their cafeteria and bring the nutrition component in too. So you're not only talking about a healthy environment, but healthy people also. There's a lot of different ways to grow food and a lot of great ways to grow food, but a lot of the conventional foods that you'll buy if they're grown in soils depleted of nutrients that plant's just not going to have it in it you know and here we're giving the plant the optimal of everything it wants in terms of nutrients so you have very nutritious produce and then also it's picked when ripe which is something that's really important for the nutritional quality of a food because of something a lot of tomatoes you buy for example will be picked green because they're hard and they'll ship more easily and so they don't have all the nutrients in them and also over time they lose nutrition also so by picking it ripe that's another really important thing this has been amazing for the school kids there's this the science standards i mean they really have to cover a lot of the things that you see out here about renewable energy about plants 
And so here they can come and really be hands-on and touch and feel all these things. They do a three-hour education program out here. We can't even meet the demand. We have kids coming from all five boroughs. We are booked solid through the end of October already um, and have requests coming in every day still. So it's been fantastic. I mean, teachers write us letters after the program saying it's the best field trip they've ever had. And now we have a lot of schools contacting us about building these on their own roofs so that they can have this kind of facility. My favorite part of my job is being able to tinker and build stuff every day outside and being able to experiment and learn new things all the time. I think learning is pretty much one of the only important things in life. And I think a lot of people get into jobs where they just do the same monotonous thing every day and they lose their passion for it. And I don't think I ever will as long as I'm learning. Thanks for listening. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Have a question or comment about our show? We'd love your feedback. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Leave a voicemail at 212-298-8654. Or send us a letter snail mail to Science and the City, care of the New York Academy of Sciences, 7 World Trade Center on the 40th floor. New York, New York, 10007. See you next week.